Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Justin, how is life, sir? Life is going great. I just got back to Vancouver from some time in Europe. I went to a conference in Nice, France on some of my graduate research, and then it's been a crazy year, so I, I took some time off and traveled around a bit, visited my friend in Spain, got a feeling for the environment there, uh, really rough situation Spain is in. Um, I can tell you a bit about it if you want to hear, Seth. Yeah, let's let's hear about Greece and Spain. I've heard there's a lot of riots going on. I've seen those a lot in the news and some pretty insane pictures. Tell me a little bit what's going on firsthand. Yeah, so I went to Spain and I went to Greece. It's in- incredible to see how much things have intensified in just a little time I was there. I saw the protests in Granada to support protests that were happening in Madrid um, grow from just a few hundred people to a few thousand in just a few days. And then in Greece, when I was in Athens for the first time, before I left to go to some of the islands, there were some protests in the square and some banners. And then when I got back later in the week, I saw a number of banners and people and also tents in the square taking the inspiration from Spain. And so these two protest movements are feeding off of each other and growing rapidly. So do you, do you see another Egypt situation exploding out of these two countries in Europe? Are we going to have an overthrow of the government? Is that what they want? Have you, did you talk to any of the people on the ground? Yeah, so I couch surf in France and Greece also. And from the people I talked to in Greece and met quite a few people in Spain through my friend, um, the people I talked to are really frustrated because the availability of jobs is incredibly low. So many of the jobs that are available in Greece are government jobs. And so people go to university and they get out and they expect, uh, you know, to be able to learn a living wage. And it's really difficult because the economy of Greece and Spain has been tied to the economies of Europe, and they're so different, so incredibly different. Whereas in the past, a country like Greece or Spain could default and you know, face its challenges and restructure, now they're not being allowed to face their challenges and restructure because they're tied to these larger economies that would suffer they're if just, they default. just going to drag everybody down. Yeah. So it's just going to be a really long process, and and who knows if Greece or Spain turns into another Egypt, it's quite possible. Uh, The CIA has been issuing warnings saying that there's the possibility of a military coup in Greece. The protests grow in number in Greece, it seems like, every night. It's possible that there could be an Egypt-style chaos, but the truth is it's Greece is a very different country than Egypt. Spain is a very different country than Egypt and Greece, and, you know, the situation's dire there, but it's not like people are starving in the same way that people are in Egypt, where 
Um, there's so many people who live on the margins of society in Egypt because of the economic situation. And even though um, you know Greece is not as prosperous as, say, France or Germany or some of the other European countries, it's still quite a big step up from Egypt. That's pretty. Sounds like you had an incredible journey over there. Do yeah. you have any good good times? Do you see any fun things? Yeah, fun things, fun adventures. Uh, I talked to a bunch of interesting people. Met up with a really cool guy in Barcelona through couch surfing. I uh, did did quite a bit of couch surfing. Met up with a really cool guy in Barcelona who had listened to our interview with Dennis McKenna, and we talked quite a bit about the influence that uh, Terence McKenna's had on his on his philosophies and his life. And he told me about all of his travels and working. Uh, on various farms in Northern California and in Morocco, and it, it was good to meet up with with a fellow extra environmentalist listener. You know? It's always great to find an extra environmentalist, and especially in Europe. Who knew that people are listening to us in Europe? To all those Europeans out there, we say hello to you from this side of the ocean. Yes, from the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, things for me here have been pretty well. Been going pretty well. Been running a heck of a lot. Just got some new running shoes, some Brooks. And uh, they have been giving me some shin splints, which are unfortunate because they're painful. They don't really hurt when I'm running, but they are a little bit painful when I just touch my leg. And my speed just keeps increasing and increasing. I took seven minutes off of a seven-mile run that I've been doing in the woods, which is pretty, pretty impressive. That is impressive. Yeah. The tomatoes are growing, and the garden is just blooming on this 90 degree heat with you know almost 80 percent humidity the pool opened at at the local apartment complex so i've been investigating the uh the swimming hole they just put the barbecue back out there so we're going to be having some big grill downs in the future welcome to stop by and have a bratwurst when i cook them yeah who are we talking today justin so today we're having a conversation with alexis madrigal the chief technology editor for the Atlantic magazine and also the guy that founded Wired Blogs. He tweets prolifically on on the internet and is always blogging about uh, various technological developments, but he also has written a really amazing book called Powering the Dream. And I read through that book and absolutely one of the best energy books I've read in a while because it puts the perspective of energy issues uh, in a whole new light in the way that it talks about the historical development of energy technologies and cuts through all the hype you see in the headlines about you know new solar breakthroughs or wind turbines being put in the ocean or all of this stuff. If you want to be able to think about these issues in an intelligent manner Absolutely Powering the Dream is one of the best introductory resources I've found. It is indeed. Political decisions, and because of the availability of cheap oil, the truth is we've had electric cars and big wind turbines, solar hot water heating for a really long time. What this book did is it tied a lot of those strings together and talked about where those fell off the mainstream map. It's unfortunate when technologies, alternate technologies are put aside because of money-making initiatives by big business. Kind of unfortunate sometimes. Yeah, let's jump into this interview and we'll catch you on the other side. Thanks for listening to The Extra Environmentalist. You're listening to Alexis Madrigal talking about his book, Powering the Dream. 
the history and promise of green technology. Alexis, you're a senior editor at The Atlantic, prolific blogger and tweeter on all things technology and energy related, and author of Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. So is there anything else we can add to your bio? Well, I guess I previously worked at Wired, where mostly I covered a lot of science and energy issues. Oh, and I'm a, a visiting scholar at the Office for the History of Science and Technology at Berkeley, which is where I kind of developed a lot of my sensibility, actually, about technology and the history of technology. So tell us about your role uh, at The Atlantic in writing and blogging about technology. And since you are a technology historian, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, tell us what technology historian is and why it is important. Sure. So The Atlantic, uh, I'm the senior editor for technology, uh, and I work mostly on the website, but then I write stuff. Uh, and help edit stuff for the magazine as as needed. We launched the channel back in September and have been kind of growing it really steadily ever since. One of the things that I brought to the Atlantic um, was an emphasis on the history of technology uh, developed largely when I was uh, visiting Scholar at Berkeley and I was working on this book, Powering the Dream, which is about the history of green technology. There are a few things I think that are that are really important about the history of technology. One is when it comes to sort of ideas and documents, like say the Constitution, we argue about them all the time. We argue about their nuts and bolts, the wording, what the words mean. Everything that you might think of in discourse um, occurs around the documents that shape our lives. But around the kind of material Constitution, like the stuff that shapes your lives uh, as much, if not more, then paper documents, we're talking like highways, rail, where you get your electricity, your cell phone network. Uh, we don't have the same kinds of social and political discussions around those topics. And I think one of the things that that study of the history of technology has pioneered has been to look at what they call the, the social shaping of technology. That is to say, like, how people compete, how interest groups compete, how governments and mores and, and social values aren't just sort of being acted upon by technology, but in fact are, uh, are shaping the technologies that are put in front of them. So the same technology, like, or the same package of technologies around railroads get deployed really differently in Germany and the United States, say. Or the same is obviously true, and we all know this now, the same is, is true of cell phone networks, say. Um, and I think my main takeaway from the study of the history of technology is that human beings matter, and that anyone who tells you that you know, we need a particular energy system because of the fundamental physics of the thing or whatever, they haven't seen how these things have evolved um, across the world. So in speaking about how human beings matter, I think a lot of people look at technologies as like a very rational, very like straightforward process. Like we develop a technology and then because it is so superior, so efficient, it immediately in inserts itself into the social order. So how have societies right. actually made decisions about scaling up technologies? Are they always rational decisions based on the most efficient solution? There are some fascinating examples um, of this. I mean, we tend to know the stories of the technologies that were successful. There is this sort of selection bias in looking at technologies and saying, like, uh, planes were so successful that they just were sort of sucked into uh, the world and, like, sort of changed the way that people thought about travel and blah, 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 blah. But if you look at something like the Concorde or all supersonic transport, all faster than sound planes, this was considered to be, like, something that was just going to happen in the 60s and 70s and was actually a major battle between actually a lot of environmentalists and environmentalist-associated people and people who just said, hey, like, this is just how technology works. 
planes just keep getting faster. That's just how it has gone, and thus it will be. But in fact, a lot of people got together and said, like, does this really make any sense? Like, why would we do this? Sure, you can get from point A to point B faster, but what are we giving up? Is this, like, ruining our sort of soundscapes? Um, Is this dangerous? Is this environmentally harmful? And in fact, supersonic transport no longer exists. (laughs) Uh, We don't have the technical capability, but we don't have the social interest. That's kind of a metaphor for how these things can work more generally because you have situations where people push for a particular thing and when it succeeds and that technology is no longer used, people just forget about it. So a lot of the successes of environmentalists, I think personally, have actually been forgotten because the bad stuff stopped happening. So the only ones we know are the ones actually that sort of socially were okay enough for people to deal with. In, apropos the sort of energy system, more specifically, I don't think we can ignore that really cheap kilowatt hours are something that people want and that end up uh, sort of shaping the social system a little bit. But I think it's important to remember that they weren't always super cheap and, in fact, in order to get people to use more electricity sort of through time, um, utility companies actively promoted the usage of electricity. I mean, it wasn't just about, you know, people just wanted it so badly and the utility companies were fulfilling market demand. And in fact, Philip Sporn, who's one of the big utility executives in the middle of the century, you know, told his colleagues, you know, the most important loads, like electrical loads, are the ones that we invent. And they did invent uh, a bunch, wow. uh, most notably uh, electric heating. Um, the reason you want to be able to invent these, these loads is that you can control where they go. When air conditioning started to take off, in fact, something that people do and did and, and do like, it meant that they had to build electrical generating capacity for sort of peak summer load. And they looked across their year and said, wait, we have to put all this sort of capital expenditure to meet the summer demand. What about the winter? And so instead of saying, well, how could we shape the summer demand? Their sort of solution, sort of socially conditioned solution was, oh, well, we're going to invent a load, comparable load in the wintertime so that we can sort of double up on our investment. And so they invented electrical resistance heating, which is you know, widely known to be one of the least efficient ways you can imagine to heat a house. When I used to work for a utility company in the southeast, one of the interesting things was learning about the history of that utility company, and they actually had public mm-hmm. stores in most of the towns that sold appliances that were named the same thing as the utility company because they wanted people to come in, buy those electric appliances, and then go home and use them because it increased demand for all of the kilowatt hours that were being produced by their hydro plants and then eventually coal plants. There's a lot of advertising, like you say, that goes into the adaptation of these new technologies. Did you find your research and did you just figure out why Americans are so enamored by this technology and then take that a step forward and say, is there a universal trend to these adaptations of these technologies into cultures that are not American and, you know, internationally. Well, you know, it, it is interesting to think about, like, why Americans particularly live such, like, high-energy lifestyles and why and high-technology lifestyles. One thing that you could point to is kind of a structural factor that it's hard to, you know, parcel out of these things, but just one structural factor. In the kind of early industrialization here in the United States, we had not a lot of people, but a lot of natural resources, and so it made people interested in machines. We're talking, you know, uh, mid-19th century here because, you know, we didn't have a huge laboring class to give jobs. Um, In fact, like, people were short on labor all the time 
and we had this huge sort of continent filled with stuff that we, you know, particularly according to the sort of social values of the time, could just use, right? And I think that's a, that's a, a key starting point, right? Because a lot of these social things, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how, why it is that by, you know, 1900, Americans are like considered to be this like highly technological people. But I think that's definitely one of them, right? I mean, it's just, it, it takes just a little bit of a seed to sort of get the momentum rolling for a particular way of thinking about technology. I also think, you know, a big part of the American conception during the Cold War was that, like, American uh, science and technology was, you know, what was going to sort of protect us from the Soviets. And I think in all, basically, post-war science and technology discussions, you just cannot get away from the, the Cold War. Both the Soviets and the uh, and Americans were just like super pro-technology, and part of it was that a lot of the technologies had to do with sort of the survival of or the perceived survival of those countries in their you know Cold War with each other. Just to answer your other question about sort of other cultures, I actually, I mean, I know that lots of people think you know the whole world has sort of been Americanized, and like it's like you know particularly I think in the late nineties. Uh, kind of anti-globalization protest movement, there's this idea that like the whole world is becoming, you know, McDonald's. But there's actually a lot of competing notions of technology out there. And I think at the sort of most poverty sort of ridden levels of the world, like, of course, people are interested in technology because it represents all these other things. And I don't think we know quite yet what you know, the attitude of, like, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of, like, poor Chinese people or Indian people is going to be to technology once they sort of have reached, you know, sort of living conditions that are more comparable to those in the in the developed world. So I think it's really hard to say, but I, I mean, just given that the U.S. is sort of a little bit of an outlier in this sense, you would think that maybe other people would have less pro or, or less sort of pro instincts towards technology. That's true. So follow up to that. In an era of Facebook and Twitter where people are sharing, you know, every single thought, every notion, there's no longer walls that keep people separated. Even older people who have never heard of these technologies are trying to wrap their mind around these things that, that people are telling each other every single thing they think of. How do these technologies that so bring us together as humans across the world, how do these technologies separate cultures from one another? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think a really obvious uh, example of this to sort of make it a little more concrete would just be the way that certain hashtags on Twitter circulate within certain populations. There's a lot of sort of conference hashtags which sort of say, like, I am here and you are not there. But taken up to a sort of more cultural level, I think you can see that in sort of African-American populations, there are like certain types of sort of usually sort of like more joke-y hashtags that really are not part of the sort of white Twitter world. And I think as a result of that, like people get this sort of strange idea, you know, black people and white people like use Twitter like really differently. And I think that the, that's the sort of the danger, right? And sort of like exposing a subculture or a culture sort of like individual interactions with each other with no context 
uh, with no sort of history, it can be easy to misinterpret because you're sort of like eavesdropping. Like, you know, I mean, you feel like that's a lot of what social media allows culturally is this sort of eavesdropping on other cultures. And as we all know from eavesdropping, sometimes you just hear even like normal things sound totally strange because you've pulled them out of context and sort of highlighted them. Does that um, separate people or does that bring them together? Probably, By making right? subcultures yeah. available, does that not bring yeah. light onto them and, and let people interact with each other that normally would not be able to interact with each other? Yeah, I mean, I think that in the more hopeful scenarios, I think that is what happens. I think that there's no guarantee that that's how things go, go though. I think it's, it's just as easy to be exposed to a, a culture and, uh, and dislike it as to be exposed to a culture and like it, you know. Um, and I think particularly minus some of the context that goes along with, you know, cultural interactions it can be easier, easy to be misunderstood. On the other hand, I think, you know, people oftentimes online interact around interest-based things. You know, they're not just like hanging out in the same place. They're talking about something that they're all interested in. Um, and I think those situations provide like great kind of cross-cultural possibilities because you know, people are, are actually talking about their common ground, you know, whether that's like music or particular books or, you know, news events. In, in diving back into speaking about uh, the culture of energy and uh, the technology history of uh, green power in the country, we, we always hear from politicians and corporations that, that say, you know, solar power and wind turbines are this new innovative technology and these scientists are, are leading our way into the future and developing these technologies to be feasible. Yet from reading your book, it really covered this vast swath of history where we've been working with these technologies for a long time. So are, are we being lied to by politicians or are, are the politicians just clueless uh, to this history? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, one thing is, I mean, the whole reason I wanted to write the book is I felt like a lot of the history just was not in the public discussion. And a, and a big part of that was that um, there just, like, wasn't sort of an extant resource to point to. You know what I mean? Like, people couldn't just say, like, hey, you want to know about that? There's this book, you know? And, like, that just right. like, didn't exist. And I had to go do a lot of both the primary and secondary research to kind of put it together. Um, so that's, that's one piece. A lot of solar energy thinking research technology kind of got tied in with hippiness in some way. You know, this like really narrow definition of kind of late 60s and really more like, you know, 70s, uh, like flower power kind of thinking. And the, the sad thing is like that's not actually historically accurate, but people and the solar industry itself is terrible at this. I always say things like, you know, the president of the solar energy industry association will say like we're not just hippies in berkeley you know garages anymore we're like a real industry and the truth is like there's always been uh at least since like the 1970s or and even before in the 1950s there was there were solar energy associations i'm like looking at my bookshelf and i've got like one of their association like history books so there have always been people who were who were saying like hey we're not just dreamers we're like serious businessmen like interested in in solar energy I think what has changed, though, and this is, like, pretty recent, I mean, photovoltaics are a lot better now. And the other thing I think that's really important, the wind industry has matured. Uh, and those two things mean that now there are, like, there's a sort of legitimate industry that, like, makes money and that has lobbyists to compete with other energy interest groups. And photovoltaics hold out this, like, great promise of, um, you know, cost declines um, through time. 
And so I think those two things, both like having people in renewable energy who, you know, have like established interests and, you know, are, are sort of corporately competitive and then also having like being able to hold out this hope of like cheap, clean energy down the line in the, in the form of like some kind of either radically efficient or radically cheap kind of photovoltaics. But those two things together are like really important in sort of reshaping the way that people think about renewable energy. And I, and I think those things, even though we've had green technology for a long time, those things are different. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, or what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason. A world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. 
Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Are we a few breakthroughs away from ditching fossil fuels, or are we locked into kind of a longer-term energy transition? And can we use the concept of Moore's Law to apply that to energy technologies? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think we're locked into like something much longer than breakthrough. I mean, there in the energy space, the kinds of you know, like if you think about even something like regular sort of power plant technology, right? I mean, it's gets going in like 1870 and it gets to about as good as it was going to get in like 1965. And that was like when, you know, you had like constant advances in metallurgy, constant advances in, you know, just kind of like the chemistry and understanding of how the plants worked and electrical generation and all that stuff. So you basically had like two world wars and several other wars to like prod the, the betterment of these technologies. In energy, it's just such a big system. It has so many parts that it doesn't change very fast. Moore's Law as a technological phenomenon is basically like one of two that you could really point to and say like, wow, like that's amazing. You know, one is Moore's Law and one is the sort of uh, improvement and scaling of power plants from like 1900 to 1960. But like those are anomalies, you know? And I think when it, what we can think about Moore's Law in the energy space is that anytime you can find a technology or a scientific field, like say material science or uh, some of the stuff going on on the biological side of things, where you're like, oh, okay, we've got all this computational power that continues to grow and get cheaper, like together, those fields are pushing down the line because the more you can do on computers these days, as opposed to like doing any kind of bench science, like beakers are a sign that like things are going to be slow. The more that you can, you know, hitch your wagon to Moore's Law, like the faster your science is going to go. And so that's one reason I'm really high on material science because it is just a field that up until recently, you literally had to like mix things together. Like we have other names for material science, right? It's like chemistry, it's metallurgy, it's like all of it's like literally Bunsen burners, you know, that's like what we could be thinking about. But now they're just like running it all on computers and increasingly figuring out how to do that. And so in my mind, like the way we should think about Moore's Law is to just think about it in terms of computers and not in terms of like a metaphor for, for what else could happen. Absolutely. As a graduate student at University of British Columbia working uh, in material science, Mm -hmm. this stuff takes a long time. Uh, You know, it's really a lot of educated guessing. And then you get to a point where you have a material that shows some promise and you start developing it. But like you said in the book, you get to a point where you start scaling it up and then it doesn't work. And then you're just kind of out of luck. And it's it's really a a hit or miss game. And it just takes a long time. Well, it's really fascinating to hear about, too, because... Like, at some level, I think people don't understand that science still works like that, particularly when you, you know, you're trying to take it from something that's like, here's like a promising chemistry, and then like get it to where like, and now we have this like product that incorporates that chemistry in a way that's useful. Like the number of failure points are just crazy. And so one of the crazy things is looking back and, and something that actually didn't make it enough into the book, sadly, um, I went to the Solar Energy Research Institute, that, well, what's now NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Uh, outside Denver, and I looked through like all of their old reports, and in fact, I sort of scanned a lot of them, and it was so fascinating to see them in the late 70s and early 80s have such hopes for thin film solar and such hopes for, for organic solar cells. 
you know, on paper, it all sounds so good. <laughs> on paper, it's like, oh, we use way less material, we don't need the silicon, and blah, 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 blah. But I think the kind of bird-in-handness has mattered a ton in material science. Like, theoretically, that could work. We know that certain types of things work uh, with silicon, and we've, like, we've just been working with it for a long time. That's one reason why, you know, you were asking about breakthroughs, you know, why I'm like really skeptical of breakthroughs in, in that sense. Like, it's not like I think they don't happen, but it's more like we look back and we say like, oh, there was this key thing. And then all these people started like working on it. I don't think that it's often very apparent at the moment that like, this is the thing. I'm not really sure about that because, you know, the last 100 years, we've had incredible advances in computational power of computers. I mean, growing exponentially since, you know, the first computer came out a couple dozen years ago, you know? So at some point, this technology is going to start affecting humanity as a whole, like the evolutionary, you know, principles of how people live, uh, advancing their brain processing time because brains only work at about yeah. 100, 100 megahertz a second or something like that. And computers are up to 5 gigahertz a second, which is incredible amount of processing power going on at what point do we start integrating those kind of chips those silicon silicone based technologies into our own brains you know extending human human life through their in their mind and because capacities. yeah exactly and, and you know what what point do we download the entire experiences of humanity into every newborn that's that's born and you know go from that as an evolutionary starting point well i, th- I mean my answer to that is i think that i think that the that biology is harder than people think that's kind of what that's my like basic answer to it like there's all kinds of social reasons you might not want to do those things there's all kinds of social reasons you might actually want to do those things but i think that basically when people think they've got biological things figured out, like a biology has a way of frustrating them. Um, and a really good example, I think, is, you know, recently, um, just like in the last few years, you know, Craig Venter, synthetic biologist, has been trying to put together a completely synthetic genome where, you know, you've got like a Word document with a genome, literally, and then they print out all the DNA, literally with like, you know, the chemicals, and then they like put it into bacterial cell and then they transform it into that what they previously had in the word document on their computer they got so close to like all of those things and it took years of years to get to the point where they could actually get it to work and they, and they end up having to sort of use some black boxes like they use yeast to like sew these like segments of the genome together and they're not really sure why that works or why it doesn't work but they know that like well if we just do it enough time sometimes it works and that's like the most basic, like fundamental thing. And I think you see a lot of the same stuff around like human brain interface stuff where it's like, okay, theoretically this makes sense. Theoretically it's all just information. When you make that move from the information part of it, which literally just, you know, zeros and ones at the end of the day, to putting it into these sort of biological terms, it just things get messed up and like it sounds like quasi mystical. I know what I'm saying, but like just having reported on these things for a while, it's it's purely this is an empirical observation, not like a teleological observation. It's purely like, yeah, every time everyone tells me in biology that something's going to happen, it could just going to take way longer, you know. And I think it's the same way with energy too, because it's so much about biological and uh, energy related innovation. It just takes so much longer than people expect. It. You talked a little bit in the book about uh, Canadian author Vaclav Smil's uh, concept of mm-hmm. Moore's curse. Maybe you could describe that a little bit. Oh, Vaclav is a really funny guy. He's a, he's a great guy, but he's also he just loves being a curmudgeon so much. 
<laughs> it's like part of like his self-conception is that he's like a contrarian curmudgeon. But anyway, yeah, he, you know, he has this concept of, of Moore's curse, which is essentially that we've been culturally conditioned to think of technology as something that changes really quickly, largely because we grew up in this time. Um, you know, if you grew up from 1960 to now, you essentially grew up at a time where computing technology was um, getting cheaper and more powerful exponentially. And in energy technology, we just don't find many situations where technology improves exponentially and gets cheaper at the same time. Um, and so our instincts, like our intuition about how fast the technology should change, are actually off. He calls that Morris curse. Or that might be a, I might have slightly extended his concept there, but, but that is Morris curse, that our, our brains are not prepared for the slow speed of innovating in energy systems. How do energy technologies gain momentum? And so much of political posturing mm-hmm. on this topic talks about you know, the market's ability to choose winners or don't choose winners and, and this kind of debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so how is it that these energy technologies get into the public eye and public use? The government always chooses winners. When it comes to like new technologies, like basically it's because some government decided at some point that it's just going to support this thing until it's viable in the market. You know, we saw that happen a lot. I mean, even, even the whole idea, I mean, our entire electrical system was built on this idea that electric utilities were natural monopolies in the language of the time. And therefore, they should, I mean, if you think about like what we did with our, like talking about like choosing winners, right? We picked electricity for example. No one really thinks about this, but there are other motive powers, right? There's compressed air, there's water power, there's all these things. Governments like largely said, oh, okay, we think electricity is, is what's going to work. And not only that, but we think that a particular industry form makes sense for the utility industry because they're a natural monopoly in an area. So we're going to like give them an area and say, serve these customers, and we are going to essentially guarantee you that you're going to make money. I mean, that's kind of like what the beginning of the electric utility industry is in the, in the early 20th century. We literally just like gave them a territory and we're like, okay, well, you have to submit to some level of like government scrutiny, but in return, you basically have a guaranteed business. Well, that's what they did with the broadband industry as well and the te- telephone industry as well, right? Totally. I mean, this is the way, I mean, that, that's what I mean. Like, if you, I mean, at least in some cases we auction things or whatever, but in, in the case of the electric utilities, we just gave them stuff. It's not just subsidies either in a lot of these things. Like if you look at the, what we did with nuclear power after World War II, I mean, there was just firm, consistent tax breaks, support, loan guarantees, rhetorical help, lobbying help, every, every, everything from the U.S. government for about you know, 30 years was, was pro-nuclear power for a variety of geopolitical reasons. I mean, talk about the ultimate picking winner is the United States government and and nuclear power. And I I mean, I'm not even saying that as like a bad thing. Like I'm saying that as like, this is just the way it happens. And so when people tell me around like green technology that, oh, well, yeah, sure. Like 80% of people support solar power, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we should have the government like pick a winner. I'm like, why not? That's like, oh, this is like, this is what a democracy is. 80% of the people want it. It's something that, you know, falls within the realm of sort of like supporting the country's sort of industrial and goals. So why don't we just put money behind it, you know, and let, let the government pick winners. Say, look, we're going to, we believe in solar power. We're going to put all this money out there and then we're going to let the market do whatever work it does uh, within the sort of nice playing field 
that we have um, that we have created for it. I mean, that like to me is just like totally the way what makes sense. But one of the interesting things in that you really got across in the book was the way that inconsistent government subsidies for research yeah. into these technologies really set things back. I mean, one specific example was in the aquatic species research program. Maybe you could uh, jump yeah. into that, describe that a little bit. I actually think that inconsistent funding can sometimes even be worse than no funding at all. And the reason is that you essentially give people the impression that uh, a particular technology is not viable because it gets some money and then goes away. That perception is more important than people think. Like it actually matters that people believe that a, a particular technology is a good idea. So there's that. The a really good example of this is this algae research program. People have been working on algae since the 1950s. Uh, originally, we had these like crazy um, population estimates, we got people thinking, and we also did, hadn't really finished the green revolution, so to speak, where we all of a sudden had much higher yields and could imagine a smaller amount of land like feeding people. So people at the Carnegie Institution started looking into growing algae to feed to people. <laughs> um, like that they was considered that this would be a great way of, you know, reducing the amount of arable land needed to like grow fats and, and proteins and other things that they thought algae could do. Um, and that work gets picked up in the 1970s by people who want to use um, algae to create oil because we know that some algaes are high, some algal strains are high in lipids and fats, which you could use to make diesel fuel. The Aquatic Species Research Program gets going and what they do is they go out and they look for all these different strains that might be prone to making a lot of oil. They looked in places that are really interesting called Playa Lakes, largely kind of in the mountain west, where essentially things dry up and then get wet and dry up and then get wet and dry up and then get wet. And they figure that, oh, well, one of the protective mechanisms that these organisms might have is that in certain nutrient or whatever starved positions, they might start generating a lot of oil. It's called the lipid trigger that people were, were thinking about. And it's unclear whether or not such a thing exists, but that was sort of the scientific um, basis for doing what they were doing. And they were looking at there, and they got pretty far along the line. And the scientists who were working on it sort of said to themselves, like, hey, like, we're, we're getting somewhere. We're gonna, we've found really promising algal strains. We have, you know, started work on sort of commercial production side, you know, figuring out how do you harvest these things, how do you get the oil out of them once they've produced it. Because they've done all this pretty extensive work. And then essentially the program got defunded and eventually they didn't even have enough money to maintain the collection of species that they had put together. So you have this lovingly cold and created selection of organisms, all of which are unique literally unique like you couldn't go out and you know it's, they're not like a deer you could like go into a forest and find another deer the chance that you would happen to find this kind of uh, this gusher of an algae species is like totally slim right i mean you're looking for some particular algae in like some particular lake right that has evolved a weird set of characteristics so these things are essentially unique organisms in the world and they may have you know, properties that we want and the collection was essentially left uh, to the University of Hawaii without any funding. So eventually a lot of the uh, species were lost. And, you know, sure, maybe like that doesn't matter because we could do all this like genetic research and we could find out whatever, whatever. But the truth is like that's harder than it sounds. 
and we already had identified all these tip species, so like throwing them away was essentially just like a waste of taxpayer money. But we essentially had to because they were not funded. And so, you know, you have all these companies getting like hundreds of millions of dollars to like do algae research in hopes of creating like bio-based uh, fuels that don't use food crops. And one of the, if not the major source of information for all these people is this government program that was canceled and, and defunded and that lost, you know, its most valuable production, which was these alcohol strains. Pretty much like, to me, that's like a metaphor for U.S. energy research. Like we've done that so many times and we not only lose the stuff, we lose the people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> and the point you made in the book is that when it comes to algae, we don't even know enough to know whether it would really work or not mm-hmm. on a scale. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Like algae might be a terrible idea. There might not be a lipid trigger. There might be no way to get them to work against their own biology and like overproduce a ton of oil. But yeah, we don't know. And if we knew, we wouldn't be, we're either wasting hundreds of millions of dollars on algae companies that will never succeed or those algae companies are totally underfunded because they, this might be exactly the thing, but we don't know. And, you know, we've spent 20 years not funding these guys while we were massively subsidizing like corn, uh, ethanol. Like, why'd we do that? <laughs> it's like, it was just a, a bad idea all around. It's very easy for a government to start a project. I mean, that's one of the ways that government kills ideas and kills projects is by starting them off giving them some money and then just cutting the funding and saying, oh, sorry, no more funding, dry out, and the program just dies. Do you think that if an idea becomes so prevalent in society and you say 80% of the people want it, would it help if you if you put that on the ballot and said, hey, when you vote for this president, you also vote for this idea and this idea? I mean, we have the technology nowadays to make a direct democracy a possible thing. Voting through technology is a very easy thing. If you made issue-specific things on on a ballot like that and people voted for, say, we want solar technology, we want this to be developed, we want this, you know, would that be something that could help make these technologies a feasible? It is really interesting, you know, like I haven't actually gotten that deep into uh, like how would I change political structures such that you know, in a, in a major ways so that these things can work. I mean, I think my response to this would be that like at a local level, that seems possible to me, like at a local level saying like, Hey, look, we want our local utility to have X percentage of its power come from solar or right. You know, things like that. You said that the the government picks the winners, you know, so they would be picking that technology as the winner. The interesting thing is, yeah, I mean, like, I think it's, it would be a good idea to get people way more involved in technical decision making. That would be my number one thought. It is going to be difficult to do that. And I think the main reason is not that, like, pe- people just, like, don't care enough. The vast, vast majority of people don't care enough. As a result, like, you, when you put something technical, like, which actually happened in San Francisco when I was living there, on the ballot about, like, certain things that a utility should do, you end up getting, like, you know, tons of money from lobbyists poured in and then it becomes this really difficult situation. And I think, so my answer sort of is that, that there's sort of a infrastructural reform that needs to happen around the kind of corporate influence that people can have on elections. Yeah. They would just vote based on, you know, what they see on, on the commercials like that. You know, you wanted to have such faith in people, but then you, you think about the reality and it's like, ah, that's not going to work. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. Well, and I, and I, I do have a ton of faith in people, but I have a ton of faith in, like, sort of 
interest group based politics. Like I know that people don't think that that's like, like interest groups are like a really bad word. I feel like in the U S right. It's like, Oh, these like special interests, but like, that's the way it all works, you know? And I think like a really, an example that I've been thinking about a lot because I'm writing a movie about them is uh, the, uh, the league of American wheelmen were these like early cyclists who were really agitating for good roads, as they called them, just basically they wanted roads, <laughs> paved roads to cycle on. And, you know, they were like maybe a hundred thousand strong in the 1890s, but they were an incredibly effective pressure group. And they were sort of a combination of sort of corporate people that you would imagine, that is to say bicycle manufacturers. And then like the people who were actually involved in sort of racing and riding bikes and all that. And like that combination of groups was just amazingly powerful. I mean, they were, I mean, I'm reading a social history of the bicycle right now. They were saying that they were like, uh, possibly the most effective pressure group at a time when, like, there were all kinds of pressure groups. It's something that, you know, we now, I mean, green technology, to me, gives people on the environmental side of things, like, an actual corporate partner, you know? And, they, and I think, you know, a lot of people sort of hate it at some level that there are these corporations that want to, like, you know, in their mind, exploit the environmental cause. That's kind of what you need because they provide both the actual material alternatives to the current world and they also provide like the cash money to like get stuff done. And I think uh, that to me is like probably the kind of blocking and tackling work that will actually get stuff done. You touched on the wheelman example. Uh, One thing that I learned from reading through the book that I hadn't really thought about before is the way that the bicycle paved the way for the automobile. Yeah, That that was really fascinating in the way the road system and the laws came into place. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. In between America's cities, like not inside of them, but in between them, there were only 200 miles of paved road in 1900. And if if you think about how many miles of railroad there were, at the time, and how many miles of trolley lines there were inside American cities. You know, we had a, a rail-based transportation network where you could have gotten pretty much anywhere you wanted and anywhere within the city um, where there were a lot of people, you could have just like taken a, a trolley and you would have never had to own any kind of personal transportation vehicle, right? But the bicycle, particularly uh, in the year 1896, like sort of explodes onto the scene. There are all these people with bicycles and there's this whole idea about sort of that you should start purchasing your transport, that that transportation and the transportation system should be based around ownership. And bicyclists went out there and they laid a lot of the hard infrastructure, so to say like the roads. They also laid soft infrastructure like bicycle shops out of which many people like say Henry Ford came to work in the automobile industry. They also laid down sort of systems of production and the sort of closest thing to Henry Ford's sort of assembly line and all of that kind of Fordist production models came in the bicycle industry. They also came up with commercialized and popularized pneumatic tires, which became necessary for cars also. And maybe like most importantly, they started to like give people this idea that transportation was about personal autonomy. It was about like freedom, the freedom to go where you wanted, uh, whether that was like away from your parents, like sort of prying eyes as you were trying to, like, take your girlfriend out, or freedom from the kind of, you know, sturm and drang of the city, that there was just this, like, incredible, you know, crush of people, you know, in Manhattan, and you could, like, ride your bike somewhere where, you know, it was nice. <laughs> and um, cars became that, that later on, too, didn't they? Be- they became little little havens for people to go take their girlfriends machine. out and listen. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in fact, there's a um, European story named Guy's mom, 
who coined the car of that time, the adventure machine. And, and it really was this thing that could take you wherever you wanted and became one of the main ways that people promoted the car through this kind of social appeal that you could like, you know, take your girl out, uh, which is kind of, an, I mean, it's sort of amazing, right? Because you think about these sorts of technological decisions in very rational terms, like this is the way that this should work, like this, that, you know, we, we use these things because they're like economically useful. A guy named uh, McCarthy wrote a book called Automania that I think is really good on sort of connecting up the social aspects of owning a car to the sort of technical aspects of the car industry. Like, there was no reason to, like, make it so cars could go really fast except for people just, like, liked it. <laughs> you know, there's no technical reason to do that. Uh, and that's definitely worth reading for sure. This is the Extra Environmentalist, and you're listening to our interview with Alexis Madrigal, senior editor at The Atlantic. And, and in speaking about cars, you wrote quite a bit about the electric car system that was around um, at the turn of the century, uh, in, turn into the 20th century. Um, tell us a little bit about the electric car transport system that was being developed in, in all of the major cities of the United States. Sure. So in the, in the mid-1890s, uh, people were experimenting with all kinds of cars, whether they were electric, steam-powered, internal combustion engine. In fact, the rich people who had gotten rich uh, building electric uh, trolley lines, as it was known, the traction industry at that point, they you know, were looking around at these various options, seeing them both as a competitive threat, but also sort of industry opportunity. And they settled on the design of a couple of uh, young guys for an electric car. And they sort of sucked it up, the actual like design of the car. Uh, and they paired it with um, Colonel Pope, who was like the, uh, he made the Columbia bicycle and was the largest bicycle manufacturer of the day. And they uh, paired up with an electric storage battery company. And so they kind of put together what became um, the electric vehicle company. And it was basically everything that you would want, right? You essentially have, like, the money guys who had made money in electric transportation. You had the storage battery company. You had sort of the design of an electric car. And you had uh, the manufacturing capability of a personal transport company, you know, that had made bicycles. And with that kind of, you know, sort of dream team configuration, they thought big. They were like, all right, we are going to design this transportation system that links into our pre-existing businesses, that is to say, um, the electric uh, trolley and rail industries. We're going to make it so that you can get an electric ride anywhere within big American cities and also Mexico, Paris, and, and big world cities. And the whole idea was that you would have been a service-based transportation system, like you would have never had to purchase a car, but you could have gotten around cities just fine. And so they, in fact, did launch electric cab service around the turn of the century 
uh, not just in New York, but in um, Paris, Chicago, a few other eastern seaboard cities. And you literally could have like called an electric taxi cab and like taken a ride across the city of Manhattan, you know, I mean, which is kind of an amazing thing. Um, and they even had um, solved one of the more difficult problems of the time and now, which is that what happens when the battery runs out for one of these cabs. And they had built on Broadway, New York, a battery switching maintenance house. So essentially, like, the cabs could roll in in the middle of the day, you know, after they'd been going around the city, and they'd give them, you know, load them up with new acid batteries, and boom, they'd be, like, back out on the road. And that actually, you know, was a bit of a technological marvel that was lost until David Kirsch, uh, historic business historian, unearthed a lot of that stuff uh, for his book on the electric vehicle company. Are you familiar with the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? You know, it's actually really interesting. Um, I feel like I should be a lot more familiar with it. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say that's exactly a conspiracy movie in that sense, but like a lot of the sort of conspiracy type things that I looked into it's just sort of like the world didn't agree with what the person who, you know, it just like didn't happen. Of course, like corporations act like corporations. They try and like keep whatever existing businesses they have going as profitable as possible. And they like only do good when it's forced upon them. And that like has been true forever in the energy industry. But I think in terms of like the specifics of that movie, like I like saw it back when it didn't make a huge impact on me, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, in speaking a, a bit about another technology, a lot of people point towards you know a conspiratorial kind of obfuscation of uh, is solar energy and specifically like solar hot water heating. You, yeah. you wrote quite a bit about that in the book and um, how economical it still is even with cheap fossil fuels in in areas like Florida and Miami. What what really yeah. killed solar hot water heating because it seemed like it was a really it was a technology that had quite a bit of penetration into the market and a lot of people were using it and people knew how it worked. Sort of at the beginning of the 20th century and then again in the middle, there were solar hot water booms in Southern California and in Miami, respectively. And in Miami, you know, it was like something like half of the homes that were going in had solar hot water heating. So, so what happened? <laughs> it's, it's actually really interesting um, to think about because it worked, generally speaking, the technology, but so did electric heating in a place where the electricity was getting rapidly uh, less expensive. So there are two things, like the solar hot water heating in Miami in the middle of the century like was basically staying flat in terms of its cost and the price of uh, heating water in other ways was dropping. So there were sort of, you know, kind of fundamental structural economic thing going on and a lot of that had to do with just they were building more power plants in Florida, et cetera, right? And power plants were getting better during that time. But there are other softer reasons. Uh, one of the big ones is that not all of the solar water heating units were installed all that well. So some of them had pipes burst, some of them had maintenance problems, some of them had uh, corrosion. And so you had the situation where the lack of you know excellent manufacturing for these things and the lack of good, good, you know, return policy guarantee. Like if, if let's say if it's going to break in five years, then the whole argument that, you know, oh, you know, you can just use the sun for years and years and years, that whole argument sort of goes away. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit difficult to, to parse exactly the role of the local utilities. But I just think like the, the key thing to remember is they, up until, you know, 10 years ago, 
their number one imperative was to sell more electricity. So Florida Power and Lighter, uh, I think that's who it was down there at that time, you know, they would not have wanted you to use solar or hot water heating, right? That was a competing industry with their industrial goals. And so I think that's really the thing to remember is just that, you know, they did not make it easy. And as in California at the beginning of the century, they could do things like, because they're a huge corporation, they could like give away the water heater, right? And figuring they'd make it up through time. And that actually gas heat, gas water heaters in California were, you know, given away at very low prices, the whole kind of give away the razor to sell the blades. And that's something that has long plagued all green technologies, this idea that, you know, with a lot of, there's no recurring revenue stream. So there's no one who's willing to put up to give you something low priced uh, and then make it up through the years. We've talked a lot about historical technologies and historical green technologies that have mm-hmm. come and they've gone. Where do you see the future of the green technology industry going in the world, you know, as our energy allowances kind of start shrinking and peak oil kind of yeah. makes itself known? How do you see green technology more important in, in our world and, and more prevalent in our societies? Well, I think, like, at this point, I think it, there's almost no doubt that it's going to happen. I mean, the one, the thing that we haven't mentioned through this time period is that, you know, all of this historical stuff up until 1990, climate change like, wasn't even something they were thinking about. There were all kinds of other reasons that people wanted to change the energy system. And they didn't even have to do with, like, the primary problem of our time environmentally. That will make things go at some level. That has got to generate change. I'm not saying, you know, it's easy to see all the things that aren't going right for <laughs> green technology, but I think that if you just look at 1995 and you look now, things are way better. If, even if you look 1975 and you look now, things are way better. And I don't know exactly when we're going to hit this sort of like inflection point where it becomes totally clear that green technology is like dominant in the world. And it might, might never happen. It might be that we have a natural gas uh, shale gas bridge to a uh, third nuclear, a third coal with CCS, uh, carbon capture sequestration, and like a third renewable sort of grid, you know? Or we might have like some kind of radical efficiency improvements or, you know, I mean, there's like, there are lots of things you can imagine happening. But I think that the idea, there's like the most fundamental switch I think that has, has happened, at least in the United States, is that people no longer think it's a better, it's a good idea to just sort of burn more coal to make more power. And I think that means in one way or another that green technology is going to play a massive role in the future because the only way you can imagine that not happening is if people just decide that burning coal is awesome, (laughs) which they did for a long time. And I think people underestimate the seismic nature of that shift, which only occurred really in like very recent times. All the visions of the future um, that people had in the 50s and 60s, well, I wouldn't say all, but quite a few of them uh, depicted this techno-utopia of almost infinite energy mm-hmm. use where, where people, you know, where robots served everything and there were spaceships traveling amongst the stars. Were people mm-hmm. just ignorant that there were limits to energy availability or, or what was the disconnect there? Well, I think, you know, it's really easy to overestimate the sort of regularity of your era. 
You know, I think if you grew up from 1900 to 1960, more and more energy was available. A guy like Glenn Seaboard, who was head of the Atomic Energy Commission, at one point said, it's like, oh, you know, nuclear power has showed up just in time, you know, because there was no other way to sort of keep to keep growing the kind of electricity and overall energy usage we'd seen in America during that time period, unless you came up with something where you could at least imagine in the spreadsheet that it would be remarkably cheaper and that it could just continue scaling up forever. I think that it's not just that they, that they were ignorant of limits, but that they just busted through so many. So it just sort of seemed like, oh, all right, well, sure, like there are these limits, and also we're just going to crush through them. Uh, the U.S. government at a certain point stops funding um, research into sort of conventional uh, nuclear reactors and basically plows tons of money into fusion and breeder reactors. I mean, fusion is like a joke now. They're like, essentially, like people invested more money in fusion reactors than they did in solar energy for, for large stretches of the 1970s, even at the time when solar energy was funded more generously than it ever was or, or even has been now. So I think the point of that is that people said, oh, well, we're going to run out of uranium. So what are we going to do? All right, well, we're going to either like create uh, fusion reactors, which can run on like hydrogen, or we're going to create breeder reactors, which will create more fusionable material than we put into them. So it wasn't, you know, they, they just saw limits as something that technology overcame. The title of Alfred Weinberg's book is, is called something like The First Nuclear Age, The Life and Times of a Technological Fixer. I really like the particularly the subtitle of the book, because it tells you how people thought about it, right? Oh, there's a problem. Technology will solve it. <laughs> I think that's an interesting viewpoint, because in the book, you, you spoke about the Kinetech wind turbine, and it was an excellent example of how American businessmen think so differently from the Danish businessmen, where mm-hmm. the Danish were building these you know, very sturdy, continually improving wind turbines, and the American mm-hmm. businessmen were developing these breakthrough technologies that met this particular cost point. And you can maybe speak to that for a second. Yeah, totally. Kenetech came up with this sort of essentially marketing slogan around which they built a technological program that they were going to get to the five cent uh, turbine, that they were going to create a wind machine that could generate uh, a kilowatt hour for five cents. Now, the problem is that, like, the U.S. businessmen, like, everyone essentially has a spreadsheet. <laughs> I mean, like, I've determined, like, Excel is truly the infrastructure of a sort of uh, intellectual class, right, that there's <laughs> this spreadsheet that someone has. And it says, like, okay, uh, here's the cost of part, here's the cost of installing it, here's the cost of, like, the land, you know, here's the sort of operating cost. And then, like, somewhere, like, way down, you know, like, on the 400 cell to the right and, like, the 400 cell down, there's, like, this, like, bold cell that says, like, oh, it's going to cost five cents a kilowatt hour. But the problem is, like, that entire spreadsheet is, like, mostly assumptions. Like, some of it people know from various things and some of it people don't. And in other countries, like the Danes, don't tend to believe and didn't tend to believe that spreadsheet, right? They said, oh, okay, like the American guys say that if they make all these things and they do all this stuff, the performance will be X, the cost will be Y, the maintenance cost will be Z, and therefore, you know, and it's going to operate perfectly for 40 years, and therefore you're going to get five cents a kilowatt hour. But the problem is that the real world performance of like wind machines is 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 different, right? And it's different in different places. And oftentimes, like the promise of one of these breakthroughs, which which let you get to a lower number theoretically, are actually end up being worse 
in the field because they're less tested, they're less true, and they, the only way you can get a breakthrough is, in fact, to do to execute like a high-risk design strategy. So, you know, the historical lesson for me there was that if you try and build your company around these massive breakthroughs instead of around um, sort of incremental improvement and maybe sort of be opportunistic about what kinds of breakthroughs could work or be opportunistic about what breakthroughs that the U.S. government has already funded or what breakthroughs another industry has already funded can be applied to your industry and, and maybe look for breakthrough cost decreases and sort of synthesizing things that already exist, uh, like I would say the electric car industry has done with lithium-ion batteries, say. And like that, it just has not worked out well for energy companies to bet on energy breakthroughs. <laughs> that, uh, like, I'm air-quoting breakthroughs, you know, on on like a big idea commercialized all in one go. You, know? you have a very broad range of interests, obviously. I mean, you, you talk about technology in, in the computer world. You talk about green energy in the energy sector and, and all these issues. What do you feel most passionate about? What do you sit down at night and, and want to learn about when you, yeah. when you have free time? What, is, what are your passions that you really you know, like and, and want to learn more about? The, the common thread for me is that I really like technology and use, as they call it in science technology studies. It's like, I really like not technology as like a series of breakthroughs by like inventors, but I like technology like across the board where like people are using it. So for me, like I'm not interested in like Mark Zuckerberg's creation of Facebook. I'm like interested in like Tunisian activists using Facebook. Uh, to do whatever they're going to do and like those stories. And I think the same is true in energy, right? Like I'm not interested in like the latest efficiency record for uh, some solar cell. I'm interested in like what, like how is that changing the way that people think about energy because their neighbor has one, has a solar panel on their house, you know? For me, like that's, that's really what it is. The human use of technology, um, like actually like that really specific, like people using it, people, the way it shapes their minds and the way that they shape the technology, like that's, that's the thing. But, and I don't really care what the, I'm sort of agnostic about what the actual technology is that they're using, right? Like I'm interested in the in their way of using it. The sun and wind and waves represented an infinite power. With such incredible energy stores, the sky was literally the limit for Esler's imagination. Written at a time when oil hadn't ever powered an engine and coal use was concentrated mostly in England, his rabid enthusiasm led him to imagine futures like many of the components of the high energy society we live in plastic-based product, product culture, industrialized food manufacture, apartments with elevators and air conditioning, synthetic fibers, and huge vehicles that would not need rails to go 40 miles per hour. Sounds familiar, right? Esler designed not a world to come, but the world that came, the historian Stephen Stoll concluded. Stoll locates Esler's pe uh, peculiar prescience in his sense that human happiness would be understood as the application of technology to convenience and leisure. With the right energy sources, of course we'd have anything an able mind or marketing executive could conjure. Etzer Singh was heavily influenced by George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, the preeminent German philosopher of the day. Hegel believed that human history had an arrow, that it was going someplace, that it was progressive. And even better, the world as directed by the human mind was slowly being perfected. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels would then turn this idea into a radical call for revolution. But earlier social reformers uh, usually had smaller dreams. 
They just wanted better communities that might take some of the edge off the shock of industrialization. Transplanted to the American soil, these ideas took the form of utopian adventures. Dozens of them sprung up all over the nation, but particularly in what was then thought of as the West, Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. While wages were rising, disturbing things were happening to the people who were paid that money. The average life expectancy of even native-born white American males started to drop around 1800 and did not fully recover until the 1940s. Beginning around 1830, children were on average a little shorter than their predecessors, a sign that the extra cash in their pockets was not improving their health and well-being. Incredible dislocations were beginning to occur in American society, and many could see that these things were just the start of a much greater movement. Anxiously looking over the industrial towns of Great Britain, Americans saw coal-burning centers like Manchester and London shrouded with a permanent cloud of smoke and soot. The working class of the cities were unhealthy and dying with their children toiling in factories. Quantitative standard of living measures aside, the unique horrors of the British cities of the early industrial period were well known. The factories were the world of Oliver Twist and his trembling voice asking, Please, sir, I want some more. The American Utopias were direct antecedents of Ethler's ideas. In the year he wrote his book, Ethler spent time with the German Christian utopianist George Rapp's community economy. He also hung around New Harmony, Indiana, a 30,000-acre township that Rapp had sold to the wealthy British factory reformer Robert Owen. Owen's experiment, like many others at the time, failed miserably, devolving into petty squabbles in only a few years. Uh, and many of these early socialist communes were detailed in 1870 by John Humphrey Noyce, himself a founder of an oddly successful utopia with an open marriage policy. Noyce, like Etzler, found the community's insistence on working the land were both boring and wrong-headed. They were back to landers, uh, not manufacturers. Almost any kind of a factory would be better than a farm for a community nursery, he complained. He mocked the lack of technology from the communes today, lamenting that the sawmill is the only form of mechanism often seen. It's really ludicrous to see how uniformly an old sawmill turns up in connection with each association and how zealously the brethren made much of it. But that is about all they attempted in the line of manufacturing. Land, land, land was evidently regarded by them as the mother of all gain and comfort, Boyce complained. Etzler agreed. Surveying the socio-utopian scene of the 1830s, Etzler found something lacking, proper attention to the role of energy. They wanted to change the world, he contended. The communitarians would need power, and lots of it. Coal did not appeal to him as an energy source, as he saw industrialism as a vicious energy monopoly. Nothing but the cost of coal dictated that the many would sweat for wages in factories owned by the few. Renewable energy, however, fell everywhere on everyone. It was an unlimited democratic source of power. And the way that Marx and other Hegelian believed the proletariat would overthrow the bourgeoisie and remnants of aristocracy, had to believe that this energy source would displace, displace fossil fuels and human power. All that was needed was to change the technology that the humans used to power their civilization. In other words, change the energy system and we could change the way that men related to it and each other. Evil would ebb and perfection would rush into the society. You're listening to Alexis Madrigal talking about his book, Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. And sure. that's that's a very like hands-on uh, practical uh, approach to technology, and it's curious because the American mindset has always been one of like roll up your sleeves, get things done, do practical things, right? But we're so focused on these efficiency numbers and the cutting edge that mm-hmm. it's this strange dichotomy, and and I wonder if in looking back 
you know, as the United States progresses and moves through this next century and our, our grandchildren look back on our history, will will the American tale end up being one told to our grandchildren as a cautionary tale to say, look, these people took energy for granted and look at what happened to them? Or will it be like yeah. these people rolled up their sleeves and really started conserving and, you know, changing the way that they built their environment? It, you know, what, are you, what do you think about that? It's funny. I have like more faith in the our bizarrely like pro technology, pro capitalist culture than like maybe my like what I've said up to now <laughs> would indicate. I kind of and a part of it is I just like believe in the sort of resiliency of human beings that even even if like, even and maybe even especially if things got really bad energy wise, like some of the the you know kind of various peak everything uh, scenarios. Like I actually think that where you'd see people coming up with new stuff would be here in the United States. I mean, we're just so devoted to that idea, and it's like such a part of the kind of social DNA of the place to try and come up with, like, solve these problems. That I think if once the problems are big enough that they're they're no longer chronic but acute, I think Americans will do an excellent job at solving them. I think the real problem is what about things like climate change where the problems are going to be acute way after they're like actually acute. Like we're going to feel the heat long after the, you know, after we had to make changes. And then that's, that's where I'm pessimistic, but about solving the sort of immediate, whatever energy thing is that, that has to happen. If we truly run out of fossil fuels in some sense or whatever it is, I think that is actually something we'll be excellent at. <laughs> um, I know that like, sounds totally nuts, but um, we've just been good at it in the past so many times. I saw a lot of parallels between the transcendentalists of the 1970s in your book and a lot of the peak oil survivalists that are that have been emerging over the you know mid to late 2000s. It, can you talk a little bit about the transcendentalists of the 1970s and maybe what they could teach the peak oil survivalist uh, people of today? Yeah, you know, it's. <laughs> I guess the the thing that I would think about the solar transcendentalists that I think is fascinating. Uh, because my last answer, like they, they really believed that social thinking, their, their minds, for better lack of a better term, their hearts were like changed by using solar energy, which is sort of fascinating, right? I mean, because if you believe that it leads to all kinds of interesting stuff, right? First of all, it opens up the idea of like, what does using solar energy lead you to think? or lead you to feel. And of course, like all these people thought using solar energy led you to feel like great things and that like you were more connected with X or Y, you know, Mother Earth type stuff. But other like social scientists went back and said, well, what do solar powered economies tend to look like and wrote papers like, uh, you know, that solar energy would become, would, would lose, or be the harbinger of the return of feudalism. They're basically saying that like, when defined like as like W work, like useful work was no longer sort of accomplished by fossil fuels, like there'd be like a return to serfdom. <laughs> and uh, so I guess I, I, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, the, the lesson could be like, be careful about thinking that social systems will be driven by the type of energy used. It seems to be people who get obsessed with energy tend to think that, right? And I think that, oh, well, you know, that's just what it is. The social system is determined by the energy system. Um, and I guess I, I just worry about that a little bit. Um, it seems to underestimate sort of human beings' ability to change or culture's ability to change. 
But that could be one lesson. I mean, the other lesson could be just that, like, the solo transcendentalists were uh, willing to live in um, all kinds of different ways for some period of time, but very few of them still exist. <laughs> so that could be another lesson. So we're not going to let you get away today without asking about what you're most excited about in the next 10 years, what new technology you're most excited about. I'm most excited about things coming out of material science, and, and that's not just because you're a material scientist. Like I, Actually, I, I am, in fact, most interested in material science. And I think that I would say that it's either PV or batteries that I'm most interested in. And, and I, you know, I guess I don't truly know enough about material science to be able to, like, say, this particular kind. Um, and not that also, I and mean, those things could also be new carbon capture uh, molecules. So, I mean, all of these things, like, so many of our energy challenges seem to revolve around material science. And it just so happens that material science seems to me to be going through and, and likely to go through more of a uh, revolution based on um, computing power, that there's huge challenges and there's a big new way of doing things, like an infrastructural way of doing things. I am excited about the technologies that we'll hear about in 10 years that are coming out of materials that are just being developed and thought about now. Definitely, and, and that's one of the reasons I'm in uh, materials science and materials engineering is, is being able to push this along and learn about it. In writing and researching this book, did it change your view about the world and about energy? Did it make you more optimistic or, or pessimistic about how we're going to respond to problems of energy depletion? Or um, did it change your values in, in any way? I think it made me more agnostic about the technologies. Like, I think I went in largely as a green tech advocate, kind of like, mostly just because I'd been writing about it and I was interested. I don't really care anymore in an emotional way about what technologies work. Like, I don't care if, like, if small modular nuclear takes off. Like, I think that's great. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not actually concerned about a lot of those things. I also think that I found sort of, like, within myself that I don't think, like, I'm at all a traditional environmentalist. I mean, I think I'm probably, like, closer to a climate hawk uh, or something like that. Like, I think I am not at all bothered by the anti-conservation stuff that happens around solar power in the Mojave or around wind stuff in the Midwest or any of those things. A lot of the reason that I became more agnostic is just you realize that there are going to be pros and cons to, like, every single energy technology and in fact, like, there kind of should be, you know, I mean, there are major alterations of the world required for every energy source at the scale of human civilization. And so I think it pays to be skeptical of all of them at some level, but also know that people, and, and this I think is a fair thing to say, uh, that people all over the world uh, want access to electricity and uh that is something that we're going to have to figure out. So in summary, you're saying it really is about picking your poison in that sense, turning to that old cliche? I, I think there is one technology that I'm like not totally agnostic about, and I really think that coal is the enemy. That's kind of the thing. And more, more, let me put this, it's not the enemy, it's the anti-hero, right? Like coal does all sorts of stuff. It lets us do all the stuff that we currently do. Like if we didn't have it, we'd be in trouble <laughs> at this moment, right? But it is sort of the anti-hero in the sense that, like, it, so many of its costs are externalizable, and it's so hard to get them to be internalized. And so it is based on our sort of current market faith. It is 
poised to do a lot of damage. And I think that is a problem, you know? Like, it's not that the coal itself is bad. It's that the coal's interaction with our current understanding of markets is bad. And that would be my takeaway. Just not coal, essentially. Any, anybody but coal would essentially be my really take on it. Definitely. It's so so easy to hide it. And, and having worked at, at coal plants and such, it's unbelievable the amount of ash that comes out of burning coal that's just thrown in these dams and stored away. And, you know, we think about nuclear waste. And, yeah, there's some serious issues with uh, long-term storage yeah. of radioactive material. But, yeah, you know, there's all of these heavy metals and things in the coal ash that we just don't even think about or see. And there's so much coal still left to burn on this planet that... You know, I'm afraid it's going to be with us for a long time, but that's that's a challenge. To oh, face, totally. So. I mean, that's totally. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, I, I had, I don't remember if it was Ken Caldera or one of these other like big thinking climate scientists. It might have been a guy from um, Hansen's um, lab. He just said to me at one point, like, the issue is, what do we do with the coal that's in the ground? <laughs> you know, like that is the climate issue. What what do we do with the coal in the ground? Like, basically, the oil all is going to be burned because it's just too valuable, too easy to move around, too easy to get to, even the stuff that's under the sea, <laughs> relatively speaking. But what do we do with like all of this coal that is just sitting in China and sitting in the U.S., sitting in the former Soviet Union? <laughs> you know, like, what do we do with it all? And like, eventually we're going to have to make the decision if we believe that um, climate change is important, which we do, I think, to leave it there. So like, we just got to leave it there. Uh, even though you could burn it, you could you could dig it up, you could burn it, and you could uh, make money from all those steps, you're going to have to say we're going to leave it there. And that's like the ultimate climate challenge. And that's why we need to get something to sort of distract people, right? Because it's not as if every possible profitable thing gets done in the world um, or even within a particular industry like energy. And I think making um, cleaner alternatives as profitable as that coal stuff. And all of those coal businesses is like uh, the challenge and the, the thing that green tech can actually do to make things better. So using the media's age-old tactic of distraction to uh, yeah, make, right, exactly. make, make people look at something else, like, don't look at that coal over there, look over here. Totally, yeah. Using it the opposite way of the way it's normally used, yeah. So yeah, any, any last thoughts that, that you want to leave us with uh, before we, we end everything? Uh, no. So that wraps up our conversation with Alexis, and we covered a really broad range of topics there, Seth. What kind of ramifications does it have for our future role as androids when the technological revolution turns us into robots? When humans progress to the point where our brains become digitized and are able to leap across the universe with a single thought and we'll be able to spread our consciousness over multiple bodies whether those are biological bodies or they're android bodies really really up in the air right now but i think what's going to be very interesting is when everybody is able to have their own you know mind playground where they can create and destroy it at will in, inside their own brain space everyone gets 30 teraflops of data that they can create their own life and create their own world and share that with friends, build their own realities. I think that would be a, a very interesting time for humanity. Yeah, so the interesting thing about talking with Alexis is that 
he doesn't really dive into the science fiction technology a whole lot. No, right? no, all that stuff is pretty <laughs> much uh, irrelevant when you talk to him. Yeah, and so he really cuts to the core of the way that human civilization has made decisions about technology. And we always think that decisions about technology are these rational things and that there's, you know, this right technology that goes out and because it's so efficient and amazing, it it wins a day and becomes ubiquitous. It takes over the world and our society. But the interesting thing about talking with Alexis is he shows us that technologies didn't necessarily get to where they are today because they were the most efficient they got to where they were today because people used them in particular ways and people made decisions in particular ways uh, at government levels, at business levels, at individual levels. And it wasn't always the most rational decision, but it seemed to make sense at the time. And so that's the way it goes. And then oftentimes now we end up being stuck with that decision. Government very much plays a large role in, in what industry succeeds and which ones fail. You don't really think about that, but government plays a huge role in Absolutely. picking the winners. A lot of the energy industry, and it's heavily subsidized, whether it's coal, nuclear power, oil, all gets quite a few subsidies. What those subsidies end up doing is driving down the price of energy artificially and creating a huge bubble of excess infrastructure, housing, expectations of cheap energy that fuel unsustainable behavior and then as those energy prices creep up it causes the whole system to slowly crumble and break down well all i know is that uh the prices at the gas pump are falling and that's exciting for me but i have been riding my scooter a lot more so it doesn't really matter how much i pay for gas because one gallon usually is within under ten dollars yeah but uh, gasoline prices are falling because of demand destruction and i was just seeing today that gasoline prices have fallen for 11 straight weeks now and mm. that's because when gas prices hit 370 a gallon average across the u.s suddenly it didn't make sense for people to continue driving as much as they did, and so they stopped driving. And so that's caused gas prices to fall. That's that bumpy plateau that we straddle, isn't it, Justin? It's true. And so gas prices are falling now. They'll go back up. They'll decrease. They'll go back up. But the point is that they'll fluctuate pretty pretty crazily, and that's, and that's what makes business and everything so difficult. Well, I know that I feel a lot happier when I'm paying less money for gas. Yeah. <laughs> right. Forget about the future. Forget about everything else. As long as I'm paying very little for gasoline. Yeah. But that's also another point that Alexis makes is that the American public has been incredibly short-sighted on energy decisions. And it's what are you talking about short-sighted, Justin? <laughs> I, I'm talking about uh, people who fill up their scooters with, with gasoline without thinking about anything else. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, cool. no. But, uh, but Alexis makes the point that the reason that we have an energy problem right now is because we've not thought about energy in a long-term manner for uh, the last 50, 60 years. And a lot of the reasons the U.S. has been successful in the world and it's allowed its philosophy to grow and, and look so attractive to so many countries that want to mimic the style of development we've had is because we had so many energy resources domestically, so much oil, so much coal that we still have, even though it's of continually decreasing quality. And so because we've had those energy resources in our own country, we've been able to do things like go in and win wars that other places couldn't win and uh, you know build roads and build a ton of cars where other countries wouldn't have had those energy resources so the landscape of energy in the united states 
has a lot to do with our philosophy and the way that of life that we live. So how do you feel living in the top, you know, 1% of the world's richest people? Well, the United States has really small amount of the world's population when you think about it. 330 million, 350 million out of close to 7 billion now. But yet the country consumes almost a quarter of the world's energy. And that's really something to think about that so few of the world's population consumes that much energy. World's largest prison population, though. Yeah, at least we have something to show for it. No, there's some good aspects to the United States, absolutely. And one of the things, <laughs> we're, we're hard on it, right? We're definitely hard on it on the extra-environmentalist. But one of the things you learn about going to Europe is, yeah, there's some really nice aspects and, and parts to Europe. But in many ways, they've arrived at where they have because they've had a completely different set of decisions to make. And in the U.S., it's not that we're stupider or ha more short-sighted than a lot of other places, it's that our resources and the way that our landscape has been has slowly gravitated us towards where we are now. And so, you know, people from the U.S. don't always learn a second language, whereas if you're in Europe, you do learn other languages and it's just natural. And a lot of people learn at least a little bit of English. And that's because you're dealing with other cultures and other people from other countries all the time who don't speak your language. And so you have to learn other languages to get by. Whereas in the U.S., we're ocean locked and we have Canada to the north and Mexico to the south. But, you know, let's be honest, we don't really think about them that much. And that's to our own fault. And we don't learn about other cultures because we are so landlocked. And because we're so big, it's easy to travel to a completely different part of the country that's so different. Whereas in Europe, you just take a train somewhere and you're in a completely different culture, a completely different language. And so you get much more accustomed to traveling to other languages and other cultures, whereas in the U.S. it's more homogenized. A country that speaks the same language as you, has the same restaurants as you, has the same culture as you, has the same kind of government as you. Going from Texas to New York is kind of like going to a different country. It is like going to a different country. And it's, it's fascinating that a country so large can be so diverse and yet still maintain a single government somehow. There's people like John Michael Greer who we're going to have on the podcast later on coming up soon and he writes extensively about how he thinks that because of the energy situation in the United States it has been able to maintain a single government and as the energy system breaks down as the energy availability of the past is no longer in our future the United States will not exist as a single country because the landscape is so diverse and because we have this media system that pumps out a single stream of thought to the entire country but as that starts to go away and break down, uh, as people are no longer able to fly cheaply and drive cheaply to all these places, over a long period of time, it, it may start to resemble Europe a little bit more, where you have so many different countries and cultures. And who knows, that we're still in the new world when you think about it. In a thousand years, maybe it will be a country continent that looks more like Europe where you have a lot of different states that speak different languages and are quite a bit different from each other. It wouldn't be neat if, you know, companies started taking over the country. And, you know, we'd have Google Land and we have Apple Land. <laughs> and over there we have Cisco World and Microsoft World and there's Coca-Cola Land. What, what would uh, North Carolina be if it got divided up into a, a company? Maybe Philip Morris Land. Yeah, maybe, maybe cigarette companies. Yeah. I always figured that all the major investment banks would just start buying up uh, government. Oh yeah, you, you can have J.P. Morgan World. Yeah, <laughs> that would be fun. to J.P. Morgan Georgia. I think that'd be 
a possibility. As United States kind of loses its influence and it becomes less of an energy powerhouse and loses its its teeth because it can't fund its military, do you think its cultural influences will decrease? Because, you know, the last hundred years, United States has been the country to look at for so much kind of pop culture references, music, the American dream has been exported everywhere all over the world. Do you think that those value systems brought about by the American way of life will start to degrade as well? Yeah, it's interesting when you talk to people in other countries and you go to somewhere that's so far away and so different and you turn it on the radio and it's all the same songs that you hear in a radio in the U.S., or, uh, you know, you can walk into this minuscule little village on the island of Crete that's out in the middle of nowhere, and you walk into a store and Lady Gaga is what's playing on the radio in the store. You, America's everywhere. It's crazy to see in the middle of a city like Athens, a Starbucks. There's so many little coffee shops, Greek coffee shops, but there's a Starbucks. And if you walk into that Starbucks and you sit down and you just forget where you are for a minute, and then you close your eyes and open your eyes again, you could be in any Starbucks in any place in the United States and you wouldn't know any difference. And the United States has been incredibly effective at being able to produce this mass culture and make people want to be a part of it. A lot of people in Greece really like basketball. I went uh, to watch their basketball uh, championship for uh, for the country and there was a Greek guy, he went over to the US and he brought basketball back and made it popular. And it's not just Greece, it's Spain, it's China. People really love U.S. influence culture. And the interesting thing is that it's not only been the culture, but it, that culture is tied to our way of life and our development. If there's an expectation by right. Americans that other countries and other people will accept American culture as the best. I don't know if that's always going to be with us in the future. Our model of development has proved to have a lot of weaknesses and, and problems. And people are starting to look at that and wake up. And that's what's happening in countries in North Africa. They're trying to take their governmental matters into their own hands, whereas in the past, the US was able to have political influence in these countries and try to tie things closer to the way that we wanted them. That's no longer effective because the rules of the global game have changed. And I don't know if U.S. mass culture is going to be as attractive because, you know, frankly, it's decaying in a lot of ways. You have stuff like Jersey Shore being broadcasted throughout the world now. Do you want Jersey Shore to be the ambassadors of what this country is all about? Justin Snooky is, is a pretty powerful cultural icon in my world she, she's a um, powerful and prolific writer i hear is she an, a music artist as well give it time give yeah. it time so speaking of mass culture and worldwide uh domination of american media another american dennis mckenna who we interviewed last episode was able to reach his kickstarter goal of eighty thousand dollars and will be writing the brotherhood of the screaming abyss in our conversation with Dennis, we were able to bring to light some details about Terrence's interaction with uh, Matthew Watkins, who has some objections to the time wave theory. And in our discussion, Dennis had uh, a few things to say, and they were incorrect and uh, came off inaccurate. And so we sat down with Dennis to clarify some things. So what I wanted to say was, in, in the first podcast that you did, I discussed... Uh, uh, the time wave, Terence's time wave theory, and I discussed uh, Matthew Watkins' objection to it. 
in not very much detail, but this came up as we were having the conversation, and uh, I got everything wrong. That's <laughs> what I want to say. In the first place, I got his name wrong. Uh, I called him Watson. His real name is Watkins, and I made a number of misstatements of fact about his being an Cambridge mathematician and attending the Palenque conference and all this. He did have several conversations with Terence in 1996 uh, in Palenque. He was not at the conference, but he was around. And he and Terence connected and had several conversations about the timeline and Matthew's insights into sort of its mathematical structure. That created, you know, a great deal of doubt in Terence's mind. It led eventually to a kind of a, an ad hominem attack on, on Matthew by some of Terence's constituents, some of Terence's supporters. In the podcast, I repeated some things that were said that I really shouldn't have, and I want to formally apologize to Matthew and everybody. Uh, I think I called him an asshole. <laughs> he distinctly is not. I think I called him a jerk. I think he is not a jerk. And things like that, a couple things like that, nothing too terrible, but I wouldn't love, want to be called that. I'm not the kind of person that goes around saying that about most about people most of the time. Matthew saw this and called me on it rightly, and uh, so I want to formally apologize to him here where the mistake was made, and I think one should step up and acknowledge when you've crossed the line, and I crossed the line there. So I want to call, apologize to him and your listeners. So thanks again for listening that. to another episode of the Extra Environmentalist. We have some great, great interviews coming up. So keep listening. You can find us on the web at extraenvironmentalist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail. All those are great ways to interact with the Extra Environmentalist. And we really look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, it makes my day to check the inbox and get emails from people who say that they listened to an interview and they really enjoyed it. I haven't seen enough emails from people that have said, hey, we hate you guys, so I really need some negative emails if you really do hate us. But if you like us, be sure to tell us that too. So, I mean, if you're listening all the way to the end, you really should just send us an email because, yeah. I mean, come on, you put in an hour already, might as well put in an extra five minutes and just let us know how we're doing 919-701-9872 and leave a voicemail and let us know what you're doing what you're thinking whether you're having a nice day or not tell us what you had for breakfast and on that note have a blessed day hello extra environmentalists i was just calling in to say how much i loved your recent episode with dennis mckenna found it very enlightening and gave me lots to think about. Uh, I also do a lot of stuff with my hands that doesn't necessarily involve my mind, so it's great to have something to also engage my mind while I'm busy working. I've been listening for a few months now, and each episode is better than the last. Keep up the good work, boys.